Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking to Jamie Bartlett, who is the Director of Centre for Analysis of Social Media at Think Tank Demos. He's also going to be speaking uh, next month at the upcoming Secure Computing Forum at the, at the RDS. So, how are you doing, Jamie? Yeah, not too bad. Pretty good. How about yourself? I'm not too bad, thanks. So, first of all, tell us a bit about your background. Oh, well, uh, not, not really a hugely technical background, I suppose. I studied history, and um, that was always a thing I liked more than anything else. Weirdly, history now becomes very useful, I think, to talk about technology because it's become so embedded in our lives. Having a bit of a long lens on what it's doing to society is quite, is quite handy, but... But I do remember actually my dad was a computer programmer um, when I was a kid and uh, sort of self-taught one. And uh, we had this huge IBM mid-range computer in our house in the mid-1980s and I hated it. Mm-hmm. Couldn't stand the thing. Uh, so I was always really put off computers, to be honest, because um, to me they were just a symbol of, you know, my dad being stuck in a room somewhere. But when, about a... About a, 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 a a decade ago or so, I joined this research think tank in London and started studying extremist and terrorist groups and how they operated. And I always noticed how good they were at using uh, digital technology. So I just I kind of got interested in the way that fringe groups are early adopters of tech. I studied the English Defence League a lot, um, studied Islamist groups a lot, and just trying to work out what what the rest of us could maybe learn from these from these um, sort of darker sides of internet use. And I suppose that, that sort of turned me into the idea of, of making a serious study, a sort of a serious discipline of studying social movements online. And I guess that's what really got me on to studying the dark net. I wrote a book about the dark net where I went sort of undercover and immersed in all sorts of weird internet subgroups. And, and, then, and then ultimately to try to figure out more broadly what technology is doing to society. So written a couple of books about that as well. <coughs> okay, now she did an excellent BBC Two series, a documentary series called "Secrets of Silicon Valley." Has anything changed That's since the, since then? The past two years. Well, that one came out. That was a two-part BBC <laughs> series. It came out. Was it? Oh, I think it was two years ago now, something yeah. like that. And um, it's slightly frustrating in a way because we covered in a in a lot of detail. Did you Did you actually see it? I did. It was brilliant. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, oh, thanks, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, so we, we covered in a lot of detail the story of Cambridge Analytica and Donald Trump and Facebook. Now, this was in 2016, 17, and the story, but the story really only blew up, I think, just over a year ago. Yeah. When the Observer ran a, a sort of series of articles on it. So I was sitting there a bit frustrated because I was thinking, well, we've actually covered this a lot. And you know, the BBC has got a bit of, Criticism for not having covered the story, but we did. Yeah. We did. We covered it um, two years ago. So this was all about the role of uh, sort of partly how, how artificial intelligence changing society and what it's going for jobs and for society, and also uh, the role of Facebook in particular in, in elections. Now, I mean, an awful lot has changed two years ago. Of course, Cambridge Analytica isn't around anymore. That uh, disbanded a year or so ago. The crisis broke. Facebook got into all sorts of trouble. Zuckerberg's dragged up in front of the Senate committee hearing about 
its use of data in elections. And it feels like the whole conversation about data and elections and politics and political parties has really changed quite a lot compared to two years ago. Way more public. I mean, I don't think anyone has done more for the cause of internet privacy than Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. Because people are now suddenly, I just go and speak to random people and they're all talking about it all the time, something that was not the case at all two years ago. So this is, um, this is a good sign. I think people are way more alert to what happens to your data when you share it and what political parties do with it when, you, when, when they have it. That doesn't necessarily mean to say that things are going to be uh, sorted now because actually most governments haven't really done anything about it, haven't really done anything to change the situation. And bear in mind, the technology the Cambridge Analytica and others have used have already evolved. They've already improved. We're already producing more data. So in one sense, there's a good news story there, but in, in another sense, things are carrying on as before. Yeah, and do you think there'll be another version of that happening soon as well, another version of that could happen? Yeah, I'm certain, of course. I mean, you've got to remember that there's, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of companies just like Cambridge Analytica doing all the same stuff. And most political parties, I think, in Western democracies for a few years might sort of soften a little bit what they do. They might reduce slightly the amount of data they collect and the amount of targeting they, they attempt just because of the bad publicity. But it won't stop. They'll be back doing it again in less than a decade. And then think to yourself about maybe other democracies that don't have quite strict rules about electioneering. Um, all of this stuff is going to carry on just as it was with almost no difference. One of the things about Cambridge Analytica that people forget is that a lot of its techniques were developed not in the US or the UK at all. They were developed in Kenya, in India in the Caribbean, in countries where they could operate with a bit more ease. And as far as I know, other companies are doing exactly the same things there still. So I'm, I'm certain there will be many more Cambridge Analytica stories in the years to come. And we will again be dazzled in five years' time when we realise that, for example, these companies have way more data than they had about us before. They've created even more sophisticated models about our behavior. They're now using internet-enabled devices. They're using our smart fridge data, our coffee machine data, our smart car data, our TV data, all these other things that are now producing information about us that political parties are now using those things to understand us and target us. That is where the next scandal, I think, is going to come from, and it, w it won't be too far away. Yeah, I can see, for example, if somebody, for example, is using a smart fridge to order their food in, it can, it, in theory, you can tell from what you order and what kind of person you are, i.e., if for a certain kind of food, you might say, oh, this person's pregnant, or this person has a lot of children. And if that data is given to political parties, they can use that for their next uh, campaign to promote what they're going to do. 100%. Why wouldn't they? That's exactly... Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you should give that example because I'm working on a new book and I, and I use exactly that example. I, I, I say that a, a politician will, will work out your data and of your, from your food and your diet and, and work out your not just your general personality type or your demographics or the number of people in your home, but your, your mood at a given time. So we're saying, oh, yeah, we know when you eat, we know when you're in a bad mood because you're in a bad mood just 
or you eat, or we know you've just had loads of Coca-Cola, so we know you're hyped up, or whatever it is, that would be really, really valuable information to target you with an advert, probably maybe through your TV, but maybe through your fridge itself as well. Yeah, and... and kind of, Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, no, no I'm just saying, I'm going to sort of paint a picture where in 10 years' time, Jacob Rees-Mogg in the UK is popping out of people's fridges with personalised adverts based on how many eggs they've eaten that day. It could be hologram saying, buy British. We've noticed exactly, and we've noticed today that you know you bought your bacon from Denmark, and I don't know whether you realise that, but blah 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 blah. I mean, the thing is, I, this kind of scenario of almost ubiquitous sensors and data being produced by lots of different devices all the time, which are then correlated against your behaviours to target you in an increasingly sophisticated way, sounds like a weird story of science fiction, but. In reality, it's, it's no stranger than it would have sounded if you'd have tried to tell someone about the Cambridge Analytica story 20 years ago. I mean, it would have sounded ludicrous. No one would have believed you. And so I want people to think about how this is going to evolve in the next 15 or 20 years and what sorts of scenarios will be. And it will be something like the one you've just explained. Yeah, it's like if you think back 50 years ago, it's going to go, and uh, people reading George Orwell's book, 1984, no one would have believed that could happen. But now that's all around us. Yeah, the amazing thing about um, the amazing thing about Facebook is that I, I think of it as a, as a company that's a, a little bit that it's sort of both like George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which is the kind of other great dystopian novel, which says that. In future, technology will mean that we're so highly entertained and amused that we won't care about important things anymore. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and both of them seem to have been right. But that's the interesting thing about these predictions, is that change can have, feels, feels like it happens fairly slowly. And you get used to these technologies that turn up fairly quickly. Uh, and when you suddenly stop and try to think back to a time before social media you realise just how much has changed in such a short space of time, and it doesn't feel like that when you're doing it. And, of course, the reality about how governments work is that they operate very, very slowly. So they very quickly come to be unworkable or unhelpful in dealing yeah. with the problems that these technologies throw up. You know, for me, I'm looking at social media, for example. I look at it, but 40 years ago, you have a child in the room writing their diary, and no one see it but themselves. Now the diary is social media. Hmm. It's all changed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think all of us are trying to catch up with our uh, how our school teaches all of this, how we deal with this, how our laws tackle it, how our taxes carry on working, how our relationships carry on working. Because, because these technologies have become so integrated into so many different parts of our lives, all the old systems that we've built up over centuries or decades to kind of get along in the world just feel like they don't quite work anymore. And I think that really is the core of many of these problems, including the Cambridge Analytica story, because that is partly a failure of governments to make rules about how you run elections using social media. Yeah, and uh, what can we do to ensure that social media is not used for nefarious means? 
Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think that we'll ever fully be able to, to to make sure that's the case. And to be honest, if we if we were to do pass laws to make sure social media was never used for nefarious means, then we, we probably would end up creating a Chinese-style system of postal surveillance and control, which itself would be, you know, a different kind of awful, I suppose. Mm. I, get, I, I think there are a couple of areas that relatively simple interventions or changes could at least help things. One would be these companies have to employ more human moderators. You know, the reason most of us have relatively violent terrorism and porn-free experiences on all the big social media platforms is because there are people who are paid a very small amount of money and work in very difficult conditions. Quite a lot of them working in Ireland, actually. Yeah, I know. To try to moderate these platforms. Like, it's such a difficult job. And these guys are suddenly the kind of editors of our, of our information. And I don't think, I think most of them aren't paid particularly well. They aren't trained particularly much and they don't have a huge amount of responsibility. And I, uh, or, or, or at least with, within the company, they aren't seen to be important. But to me, these people are some of the most important people in society today. And I'd love it if we could take more seriously that role of content moderator, become a proper profession, properly unionized, really well paid, really well, really well um, respected, I suppose. Um, yeah. And another, another, another area would be ad, ad tech, how we actually regulate advertising technology itself. I think this, is a, this really is a bit of a wild west. And if we can pass some laws to help regulate ad tech, so, for example, legal responsibility for advertisements run on social media platforms falls on the platforms themselves. We could suddenly see quite a lot of improvement. Yeah, but say at the moment in Ireland, most people who have been using ad tech or used to monitor social media, they're actually third parties hired by somebody else, and they're not an employee of Facebook yeah. or Google. So, because of that, they don't really care too much. But is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's such a show. I, I, given how important this role is, the idea that you're you're just a kind of agency staff that's shipped in and you don't work for the company itself seems mad to me. Yeah. And because they've been paid less, like if they were an employee of the company, they could pay more money. So because they can pay less, social media companies don't have to spend that much money as they should do on this. That's right. That's right. And you're, you, you know, you're talking about very difficult judgments these people have to make. Uh, is this piece of content terror, terror related? Is it hate speech? Is it libel? Is it this? Is it that? You know, these are tough decisions, and you really want sort of subject matter specialists, real experts, just like you do in newspapers, yeah, to be okay. able to make those judgments. And you've got to be well paid if you're going to take on that level of responsibility. You've got to be well trained. And also, I'm worried in long term what they see. How will it, will, will it affect the personality? If you're day in day out watching extreme pornography or extreme violence, how is that going to affect you as a person? Yeah, you know, I, I, I interviewed um, I interviewed someone recently for the BBC who who was who was a moderator in Germany, and she'd spent um, she basically spent six months doing nothing really but looking at terrorism content. And she said, you know, the stress that that puts on you and your private life and, you know, you just don't get the level of support that you might need for doing that. Yeah. Like, you see a beheading, 
nearly every day in these videos or something like that. I'm thinking, why should I be watching this? Who's going to get me over this when, I need, when I'm in two years' time? They're going to face more stress and some and stress like somebody who's been who's been in a war zone. How how can I get the help to make sure I just doesn't affect my life? Yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, you know. I mean, when, when I was writing my book about the dark net, I spent a lot of time in some really dark forums, uh, really, really dark groups. Uh, seen a lot of gruesome stuff, and um, it, yeah, it's quite hard to explain the sort of the level of paranoia you get as well, and how, the, these images that just stick in your mind, and the things. You, it, it's hard to explain it to someone that doesn't have to do it. Yeah. I remember when I was about eleven or uh, ten or eleven, I read I read uh, a book of the, uh, the movie The uh, Deer Hunter, and the scene when they're doing Russian yeah. roulette always stuck in my mind for years later. And then finally, when I was about twenty, I saw the movie, and I was look and wanted to see was the scene as vivid as it was in my mind from reading the book, and it was, and that kind of scared me. If somebody's seeing that kind of stuff happen day in day out, how would it affect their lives? Yeah, I think, I think we don't yet know, because this is a relatively young profession and it hasn't been running for long, we probably don't quite know yet the long-term consequences for the people that are doing this job. But this is something that really should be the all-square responsibility of the companies that are employing them and not an outsourced agency staff that does this. Because you know, these, these content moderators are the ones that are responsible for I mean, I mean, essentially making sure that these big companies don't keep breaking the law by having all of this stuff up there all the time. So, yeah, anyway, that's, that's one area that I think there's lots of other little things and people always talk about these platforms need to do more to get rid of hate speech and they don't realise quite how hard that is as a job and they don't realise when you're using automated systems to try to do this, you get so many wrong and you end up over-censoring the platforms. And so in the end, you're left with humans having to do that. Uh, and, and, and I think that's where we're going to find our, we're going to find our answers. Yes. Oh, sorry, yes. It's going to cost them a bit of money though. It's going yeah. to cost them, it's going to cost them a bit of money, but you know, we, we all know they can afford that. Well, I saw yesterday, there was a woman in Ireland who's complaining because her, her daughter is cystic fibrosis. And when the daughter was, was diagnosed when she was born, the mother realized because she's going to be have her whole life dealing with this, we're going to call her Gypsy. Facebook uh, moderators, whatever, the, the, they use an online system to, to take your name. And they said, we're going to ban her because her name is racist. Huh. And that was just uh, an online, it was an automatic uh, system that checks names. It wasn't a real person, but a system they used to actually check their names because, well, sorry, that name is racist. We have to, yeah. we can't allow her to have that on there. Yeah. You see, you see, because of because this is this is one of the the issues because because of the sheer volume of content that these platforms are dealing with, and you're talking about billions of posts per day, and hundreds of thousands of uh, sort of edge cases. They, they they have to use machines to make to to deal with the bulk of the the, the, yeah. the problems. And even if Facebook could build a machine. Because 99% accuracy in, in, in accurately determining whether something was a, you know, should be taken off the platform or not, that's still going to mean hundreds of thousands of pieces of content either incorrectly removed or incorrectly left up every single day. Yeah. It reminds you of American when it got such a death penalty 
And so then that's the people who, who are on death row are there be, be, because they deserve to be. But the 1% who, are, who, are, who shouldn't be there are there. And same with social media. You can't, you, you, that 1% is still a large, uh, a, a large uh, number of people or data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What what one percent of a billion is is still a hundred is still a hundred thousand, isn't it, or whatever? Yeah. So we're, we're talking about huge, huge volumes of of information. And I, the thing is, I don't think we're ever going to find a solution to that problem. These systems will always improve, but they're never going to be perfect. Um, but that's why the, the 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 more humans and the more specialists you have. And the more humans you have, the better chance you have of making a good decision. But you'll you'll probably never be able to employ enough people in the end because probably if, in, if, if Facebook wanted every single piece of content to be checked by a human, it would have to employ half the earth yeah. to do it because that's how many people would be needed. Yeah. And uh, we're never going to come on to surveillance technology. Where do you see it going in the next five years? Actually... Funnily enough, it's kind of where we were where we were talking earlier about the smart fridges. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly feels to me like the smart home and the smart city, i.e. the kind of the, the journey everyone seems to be on of connecting as many things up to the internet as possible because the cost of putting a chip into a device or installing a sensor in a device is now so low a lot of companies think, well, why wouldn't we now put uh, make our microwave, our kettle, our toaster, our cooker, our fridge? I'm just looking around my kitchen as I say this. Why wouldn't we connect all these things to the internet? It's practically free to do it. We can collect data about its use, which means it's going to allow us to understand the customer better, and it's going to allow us to uh, to understand whether the product's working better. Now. That's also, of course, going to include more and more facial recognition technology in commercial sectors and in policing as well, because, again, it's going to be cheaper and cheaper to introduce sensors, same as in the workplace. And so more and more surveillance is going to be from devices that people haven't traditionally thought of as being computers. I mean, really what we're doing is turning the world into computers and then adding a adding different applications on top of them. I mean, your your car is going to essentially be like a computer but that can run a car. Yeah. Now, the problem is, of course, that computers aren't designed to be all that secure. And so more and more surveillance, both corporate and um, government-led, and, of course, from the, from the nefarious hacking world as well, will be through these devices, and I, I can imagine that that will really be the big story of the next three to five years. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess also you're going to be speaking next month at the upcoming Data Solutions Secure Computing Forum. What are you going to be talking yes. about? Well, I hope, well, I'll probably mention a few of these subjects. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, is so related. But, um, but given the, the sort of audience, probably focusing a bit more on some of the latest comings and goings on the dark net. You know, because the dark net, which is that sort of encrypted corner of the internet, that's very hard to, uh, to shut down or fully monitor, has become, it's kind of become a, a sort of watering hole for people who want to buy and sell uh, stolen information. 
You know, it used to really all be about the, the drugs markets. They were the infamous parts of the dark net. And, 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 and again, Ireland's got a bit of an interesting story there because some of the senior people involved in the original Silk Road markets, yeah. I think, were based in Ireland and one of them extradited recently yeah, from Ireland was. to the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... But they've, they've kind of evolved a bit in the last couple of years. And I, and I want to bring people up to speed. They've become much more about this place where people go to buy and sell stolen information. And anywhere, and any time you hear a story about some big hack or passwords are stolen or credit card details are stolen, they end up on these specialized marketplaces on the dark net, which are very, very easy to access, and very, very easy for people to go on there. I mean, we're talking about... 15, 16-year-olds now very easily could go and buy some stolen credit cards. It would probably take them less than three minutes, which is a real worry, actually, because yeah. 15 and 16-year-olds don't always make the best judgments in life. I made some stupid decisions when I was that age, but I didn't ever have the chance of getting involved in credit card fraud because no one would have known how to have done that apart from serious criminals. But that's not really the case anymore. So we're talking about sort of democratization of some of these easy-to-access tools of criminality. And, um, and, I, and I think that maybe changes how people will understand security in future. Yeah. But I'll also maybe talk a bit more widely about some of the possible future of, of crime. And one thing in particular I'll mention is society's obsessed at the moment with with automation, the, the idea that so many sectors of our economy are going to be automated, the cars are going to be automated, so many jobs are going to be automated, CV checking, financial investment, all increasingly done by AI. And criminals are thinking about this as well. Criminals are thinking about it in the same way. I mean, crime is also going to be an industry that will be automated, just like many of our other industries will. And I think that that's going to pose some quite interesting challenges to people who care about computer security. Yeah. Well, also, you're talking about the dark net. It reminds me of, of Star Wars when they're in the uh, first movie, when they're in the, uh, that kind of uh, bar cantina, Mo, uh, Mose Eisley, and Obi Wan Kenobi says, it's a wretched hive of scum and villainy. That to me is kind of a bit like a dark <laughs> net. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I remember the scene. I remember the scene well. The only difference, or well, I suppose maybe it's similar, that on the dark net, you do also get a lot of really good guys because you do also have journalists and whistleblowers. Yeah. You know, these people also want to use the same technology to keep themselves safe. But so, but maybe in the Star Wars cantina or whatever it was called, what did you say it was called? It was, wasn't it called Cantina? Yeah, it was Yeah, it was the Moe's Eisley Cantina. My guys, the cantina, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget the music. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe in that cantina there were also some of the good guys as well, yeah. hidden away in the corner amongst the criminals, and that's, uh, that's it. Well, I mean, Han Solo was in there, wasn't he? Yeah. So that's exactly what the darknet is like. You do have all of this, this obvious image of it about it being full of criminals, but hiding within them you'll also get a lot of really good people too. And that's why someone like Ivan Knobby, who was a good guy, was in there because he knew he can get someone he could trust. Exactly right. Exactly <clears throat> right. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to add to the podcast? Um, not, 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 that, not, not that we haven't already talked about. I think we've covered quite a lot already, yeah. uh, really. I mean, 
Yeah, when you sort of when you're covering smart devices in the home, Cambridge Analytica, darknet markets, I think that's probably enough for people to uh, to get the teeth into. All right, that sounds great. Thanks so much for that, Jamie, and and ha- have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine. Yeah, no worries. You too. Nice to speak to you, thanks. and thanks very much. No problem. Glad to help. Thanks. Take care. Cheers. See you Cheers. Then. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.